July 8th, 2022. We're in Masechet Sanhedrin and Afsadi Bet Amud Aleph, six lines from the bottom, <coughs> just about in the middle of the line. It says the Gemara, Amar Bitavi, Amar Biyoshia. The Gemara is continuing in its discussion, its debate, its uh, development of this matter of Tehiyat Ameti. My Dichtiv, he's being Doresh, a Pasuk in Sefer Mishle. Now, the Pasuk in Sefer Mishle on its own is already interesting. Pasuk says, Sheol Ve'oser Raham. There are four matters, four things mentioned in this pasuk, and the understanding is that each of them, none of them, are satiated. What are those four things, or the most relevant ones for us? Sheol. Sheol, of course, is the depths, the reference in our context to a burial place, to a to a cemetery or a place where a person's buried. Ve'oser racha means a barren womb. And then furthermore, eres, losa ve'amayim, ground, of course, needs to be satiated by the rain, by rainwater. And then esh, the reference in this context probably is eshel gehinam. So the reference then is four things which are never satiated. Specifically for our purposes, of course, we're going to focus on those first two, the sheol, the place where a person's buried, and in turn, immediately thereafter, of course, the opposite extreme is the barren womb of a woman. Says the Gemara, or says Rbitavi, rather, Vechima inyan sheol etzel raham, or rechem. What's the association? What's the connection between a burial plot and quite the opposite, or perhaps along the lines of the opposite, the rechem, the womb of a woman, ela lomar lecha, rather says Rbitavi, of course, extrapolating in his uh, way, his homiletical fashion. This is a derasha. Marechem machnisu mosi, af sheol machnisu mosi. The same way a womb or the uterus of a woman brings in, it has zera that, that, that enters and then has a baby emerge. So too, the burial plot, uh, the cemetery, will be a place where you're entering the body and ultimately speaking, it's coming out. Is this a derasha, Jesse, which is going to convince a person who scoffs, who doesn't believe in tahiyat amitim? Certainly not. Is it a derasha, so to speak, with that cherry on top, once we're accepting it and looking and searching for explanations beyond that for how to understand it further? Perhaps, and the Gemara goes onward. Before it goes onward, just understand and remember the reference then in context to the ground and the burial place and the birth is very much closely associated and for good reason. The vision of Tehiyat Ametim, as we've mentioned more than once, of the Hachamim is one in which it's not just a new beginning, it's rather, so to speak, in their eyes, this vision of an organic regeneration. It's a vision in which, or an understanding in which, a person hasn't completed themselves, and therefore that very same being, that very same organism, needs to sprout forth. So to envision it and to liken it to the birth of a baby is very much appropriate. says the Gemara, perhaps we can furthermore deduce something about this, logically, quote-unquote speaking, if we look at the rechem, a womb of a woman, uh, the way that something's entered into it, uh, bi'ah, reproduction, uh, sex is supposed to be done in a private fashion, not with 
kole kolot, not with people talking and yelling about it. And of course, after the birth, uh, that's when everyone does yell, or the baby specifically is crying. So the entrance is quiet, and the exit is bekole kolot, sheol. Uh, when I look in, on the, in contrast, and uh, by extension, I look at the ground, and I look at the burial place, bekolot, says Rashi, we cry, we sob, we scream, as someone's being leveled into the ground and buried. Perhaps we can say, uh, by all the more so, that when the body emerges from it, it will be loud. So let's just speak out the Kalvachomer and understand it a bit. The Kalvachomer goes as follows. With the conception of a baby, the beginning is quiet, the exit is, is loud. Um, well, the entrance of a, of a body into the ground, that's loud. Certainly the emergence will be loud as well. First and foremost, what emergence will be loud? Rashi cites from the Pasuk in the Navi, the Vahaya Bayomahu, we say it to a certain extent in the Amida every day, Yitaka' Bishofar Gadol, Bishofar Gadol Hiruteno. It's a reference to sounding, well, it sounds like a great shofar. It sounds like one of those Yemenite shofars. Instead, it's a shofar gadol, the sound of the shofar will be grand, will be kole kolot. That's, of course, a reference to Yemot HaMashiach, specifically the derasha then of Rashi over here is to Tehiyat HaMetim. The reference is, at that time of resurrection, it will be loud. There will be something sounded to, to make certain that everyone's aware of what's taking place. Why a shofar then? What is it about the kole kolot? We've, on more than one occasion, specifically last summer when we were learning Masechet Rosh Hashanah, pointed out that the sound of a shofar, the cry of an individual, is the formless and, um, and a circumstantial situation wherein there's no speech that can encapsulate what's taking place. The cry of a baby is this cry of freedom with absolute potential. You can't put words to it. It's a baby as it emerges into this world, and you and I look at the baby girl or boy and say, can you imagine the potential that that baby has? There's no words to express it, and they don't have any words yet. They have infinite expression and potential in that context. So too, with the rebirth or a circumstance which is unfathomable, which can't be put to words, where there is, again, infinite expression, infinite potential, that's going to be Bishofar Gadolz. For that reason, every year on Rosh Hashanah, as we envision a new year breaking from the past, realizing that that Ma'agal, that Shana, that repetitive nature, we talked about this at the Siyum on Masechet Rosh Hashanah, is cut off and something is started anew, it can and must be designated with a shofar. And lastly, the Torah's reference to shofar specifically in Parashat Behar is by Yovel. Yovel is the time of liberation of the ground, liberation of slaves, absolute potential, freedom. It's a liberate. Shofar is to designate freedom. What freedom do we have on Rosh Hashanah? Freedom to express, freedom to develop, freedom to break from a past. It's so too in this circumstance. The shofar gadol and the cry of the baby are identical. Mikan. So why are they saying that they're never satiated? Why is the ground never satiated? Saying the three things are never satiated, but what you're describing sounds like satiated after. At, at the time of tehiyat ametim, you're saying. At the time of tehi, or the time of. Time of birth. Well, the, 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 the vision is, so to speak, the, the, the mother or the parents are constantly going to... It's a rechem, which, which, is, which, which has, is barren. So specifically in the context of the rechem, it's barren. It's never satiated until you're saying once there's a baby, but then it's not barren any longer. You're you know? describing the baby crying, you're describing the resurrection, so that's 
you're, you're, you're having that association. Also, this brings us back to the Sami Sutton conversation. The question is, is Tahiyata Metim, is Olam Haba the end game, so to speak, to the extent that there's no longer any process, or is there a continued yearning and longing? Even then, I think, and I, I understand how you're demonstrating it from here, even then, there's a constant vision and yearning and passion for more. Hard to distinguish and to determine exactly what that means. In a Gan Eden vision, what sort of process is there? How could they fall? There's a diminished Behira freedom of choice, but there still is something to achieve. Otherwise, we've lost any semblance of humanity. So to speak, this is a response. Again, not a full response, but this is a part of the conversation of a person who claims there's no tahiyatametim, you can instead claim to them and explain to them, we have veiled references, we have a certain understanding of this tahiyatametim. The Gemara now goes on to cite from Tana Develiyahu. This Tana Develiyahu is far from understandable, certainly latent with all sorts of allegorical references. We'll do our best, but I, I can't promise I'll leave you satiated. Uh, Tana Develiyahu says the Gemara, it was taught in the Midrash of Eliyahu, Sadikim, Atida Kadosh Baruch this, the righteous ones, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the future bring back, will resurrect. Rashi points out in this context we're dealing with, and generally speaking throughout this Patek, as Harambam points out, what we're referring to when we talk about this resurrection is a, a resurrection prior to what we describe as an Olam Haba, which is, so to speak, that eternal Olam Haba. It's prior to, quote-unquote, the destruction of what we know, as the Navi describes it. There'll be this resurrection, this completion, and then, ultimately speaking, some sort of Olam Haba, which follows. What takes place before that? Of course, we don't know, but the vision is there's this resting place before that. So there's this soul... A circumstance, S-O-U-L, uh, after death, and then ultimately speaking some sort of tehiyah, and following that tehiyah is an eternal olam haba after the completion. Not simple to put words and descriptions to it, but that's what we're referring to in the words of Rashi. It's a reference to in between tehiyat metim and olam haba. So the righteous ones at that juncture. Now, what are we referring to when we say the tehiyat metim? As we've mentioned, it's a tehiyat metim with goof. It was, if you recall, the question of Cleopatra. It was all those uh, heretics that the Gemara described. Are we going to have a body? And the answer was yes. All right, so that sounds like it's going to be a regular existence. Indeed, in the eyes of the rabbis, it is a regular existence with eating and drinking and reproduction and so forth. Is there death in that Tehiyat HaMetim? This statement of Tanah de Veliyahu, amazingly, is absolutely not. They won't return to their dirt and dust. They won't die. That's hard to fully understand. First and foremost, body, by definition, needs to deteriorate. It's a body. Right, but that's the vision. The vision is that they'll be so distilled and so pristine to the extent that it won't deteriorate. And that's interesting in and of itself. But wait a second. I said then it leads to some sort of olam haba. When we reference for olam haba, the Gemara and Masechet Berachota we've mentioned more than once, has this vision as a Gemara at the end of Ta'anit as well. It's a vision of lo ochlin ve lo shotin ve lo parim ve lo ravin ela sadikim yoshevin harambam sites in perek het bechote shuba ve'atrotehen berashehen ve'neinim there's no physicality. So what do you mean there's no death? There has to be a death. There has to be doing away with the body. 
Interesting. What's that? Only the righteous ones. So what happens with the righteous ones? So in other words, the, the non-righteous ones, is, uh, I mean, the Sadikim, Yoshivim, Ve'atrotem, Berashen, they're the ones who don't have the body. They're the ones beyond. Either don't even get it Either at that juncture, or, or alternatively, they get it. If it's the reference to that, but they won't have it in the eternal sense. But I, as I said, you know, not, can't fully help you with all of this. Shine Emar, I cite a pasuk uh, to support this notion. Uh, so the, the pasuk, kadosh Again, a reference to Tahiyat Ametim in Yerushalayim. We talked about that as Yerushalayim, as Makoma Mizbeach being the origin in the eyes of the rabbis. Haram Bam writes this. It's a Gemara, it's Rashin, it's commentary to the Torah. We started, right? Athar Minha Adama, the vision of the rabbis is which Adama Mizbeach Adama from the Makoma Mizbeach. So to speak, if that's your place of origin, that's the place where in the future as well you'll be resurrected from. That's the vision when we reference Yerushalayim. What's the description of that Tehiyat Ametim time period? It's people about whom you'll say Kadosh. What's Kadosh? Kadosh at its core is Ki Kadosh Ani, Adonai Elohechem. It's a reference to HaKadosh Baruch Ma Kadosh Le'olam Kayam, the same way God is eternal. Afhem, so to they, in their sanctified holy state of being, Le'olam Kayamin. That's the statement here in the Gemara. So it's a strange and hard to understand reference to the Sadiqim having this eternal existence after that Tehiyavim Tomar, Otan Shanim She'atid HaKadosh Baruch Hu Le'chadesh Bayan Et Olamo She'ne'emar V'nizkav Lomar Levad so the description is in the Pasuk, there will be, quote-unquote, a time of renewal in this world when God is nisgav levado, where he's elevated individually and solely, S-O-L-E, uh, he'll be on his own, says Rashi. This is the eyes of the Hachamim, in some way, shape, or form. It's a thousand-year period of time, right? The reference in the Pasuk is, shanim, uh, the, 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 a thousand years in the eyes of God is like one of ours, and as a result, there'll be this quote-unquote thousand-year time period wherein everything's redone. Right, hard to understand exactly what that means. Gemara Masechet Avodah describes existence as being six segments of a thousand years each. Are we to take that literally? Hard to believe we should. The Gemara does seem to be referring to some literal sense of it, but ultimately speaking, during that thousand time, year time period, whatever it is, however it exists, you're telling me it's only God. But on the other hand, you just told me the righteous ones, the Sadiqim, are the Alam Kayamim. So where are they? As the Gemara, we cited the pasuk. Mahen osin. What are the righteous? What are the sadikim? Hakadosh Baruch Hu osin lehem knafaim knesharim. They'll be, so to speak, angelic. They'll have wings like, uh, well, griffin vultures. Rabbi Haramadi would tell us, or eagles. Veshatin al pene hamayim, and they're hovering above the water. Shene emar, as the pasuk says, al ken lo nira behamir eretz ubmotarim belev yamim. There won't be a fear at the time that the world seems to crumble and the mountains seem to dissipate into the water. First and foremost, what does that remind Well, I can tell you what it reminds me of. A reference of water and something hovering above it brings me to the second pasuk in the Torah. Right? In fact, Rashi in his commentary says, it gives you the imagery of a, a bird hovering above its nest. And so that's, so to speak, the vision of the divinity, so to speak, of the people during that time period 
Now, how do we refer to us that actual wings? Should we get our, if we're righteous, should we get our arms ready for that? I think not. I think the reference more than anything is uh, that state of being wherein A, everything's redone, we're rewinding to the way it began, and secondly, we're envisioning ourselves as, so to speak, hovering above like God. What's the idea of hovering above the water? Uh, why can't we just find a place to perch ourselves? Hovering above the water, I've said more than once, the, re- the, the vision of Rashi, of the, the mother bird above the, in the nest, is very much, Rashi quotes a, a old French word over there, occubiter or something like that. I've always imagined with my own creativity that it's incubator, that it's an incubation time period, which means to say that the, the reference at the beginning of the Torah of God hovering above the water is at a time where there's absolute potential, before anything is crafted, before anything is formed, there's absolute potential that's inherent. When everything ends, there's again absolute potential. So the righteous ones are in some way present as God, together with them, looks out and says, how are we going to redo this? Imagine you're given a billion dollars and told the sky is the limit. Do with this what you want. You're the mother bird above the eggs. You now have to determine, how am I going to brew? How am I going to tur- to hatch forth a system, a circumstance that's going to be appropriate. That's what it is. That's the description. And any time in life of Torah we talk about renewal, we are referring to water. It began that way, and it to a large extent ends that way. And according to the Torah, it ended that way with Mabul Noah. The water will wipe out. The water wiped out Egypt. The water will wipe out wrongdoings with the tahara of water in a mikveh and with the efa paraduma has to be mixed together. This week's parasha with Mayim Hayim El Keli. Water has that way of wiping out, taking away the form, put something with form into water, and the water has a way of evaporating that, of doing away. That's the renewal that's referred to over here. And in turn, the sadikim with quote unquote those wings are playing the role, so to speak, together with God of envisioning the future potential. Says the Gemara, Maybe the righteous ones, their wings, their bodies will get a little tired. They'll be pained during this time period. Again, hard to understand exactly what we're referring to. Talmud Lamar, oh, you should know the Pasuk teaches us otherwise. Those who have a tikva, those who believe and trust in God, they'll have that strength to run and to walk without becoming tired, without losing any of the strength. Says the Gemara, yes. The chronological order is Mashiach. Yes, and then perhaps another tehya. Depends who you ask. Where would that other tehya be? You want me to figure out how any of this fits in? I can tell you the vision is the vision amongst many goes as follows. Now this, none of this is explicit and none of this is easy to concretize. I could tell you how it fits in philosophically. It fits in philosophically if our existence is supposed to be one of the combination of soul and body, so it can't be, and it shouldn't be, that it all ends or persists in a state of only soul. So once it's all quote-unquote fixed, 
There then needs to be another tehya, which is the ultimate tehya in which it's body and soul, but doing it and getting it right. That's the vision, and it comes after olam haba. What do you need olam haba for in the interim? Some sort of coming to completion state of time, time of being. That's the way it's very often stated. It's rare that the Gemara explicitly states it like that, but there is such a reference to a further tehya throughout. First soul only in olam haba. Preceded by, you know, that olam haba referring to by tahiyat hamitim. Yeah, again, I'm not, I'm not purporting to have the answers here, but I can tell you, I, I, you know, I can tell you what their words tell us. I can, I can tell you very clearly as well. They don't have all the answers. We're doing our best to, you know, pick up unveiled references. And more than anything, and I, and I mean it when I say this, the limud for me needs to be one which informs me about my life today. If I envision, that's why I just did that to you. If I envision the ultimate, quote unquote, being a tehya with body, it means that this existence right now is not all that rotten. But I've been envisioning the best it could be is when I strip away all the physical. Maybe not, you know what I'm saying? So it needs to, each one of these dirashot and each one of these descriptions, I think, need to inform us in our life as it is now, instead of just being a yearning for what will be, quote-unquote. Says the Gemara, V'neilaf mimetim she'hiyaye cheskel, the Sefer Yeheskel in Perik Lamedzayin, references how Yeheskel resuscitated, brought forth to life uh, certain asamot, certain bones which were yeveshim, which were dry. Uh, says the Gemara, and I'm explaining based on Rashi, well, those dry bones, ultimately speaking, the understanding is died. They weren't eternally alive. He resuscitates them and then they die. Rashi's understanding of the Gemara then is, wait a second, Tanad Veliyahu, you just told me the way it's going to work is they're going to come to life and then live eternally, at least the righteous ones. Maybe not. Maybe you have the wrong understanding. Maybe if I look at the model, the paradigm of Tahiyat Metim as being Yechezkel, it's the time in history, quote-unquote, it took place. They died afterwards. So it's going to hold up. It says the Gemara, Tanad Veliyahu must be of the opinion that the Atzamot Yeveshim, those dry bones of Yechezkel, which he resuscitates, which he brings forth to life, was all a mashal, it was a parable, which means to say that never actually happened. What was the parable? And in turn, you can't envision what's to be in, quote, real life from what happened then, because that never happened, that was a prophecy. What do you mean? What did happen? And what was the prophecy in the parable? It goes as follows. He's told by God, and it's a vision. It's a hayyad There's a vision of God to him, which means to say, according to this, never happens. It's just envisioned and seen by him. He's taken to a big eye. He's taken to a valley. And in that valley, he's told to resuscitate, tell us these bones to come back to life. And they do. And then... The end of Perek Lamedzayin has him turning to Am Yisrael and saying to them, you think that you'll be eternally in exile, you should know it's not so. The same way God could and quote-unquote did take dry bones, put flesh and life into them, so too you will ultimately speaking make your way back to Eretz Yisrael. Again, as I said, it's for that reason many people will read this on Yom Asma'ut. It's a very appropriate Perek for envisioning the return, for realizing not all is lost, not all was lost. But anyway, says the Gemara, it's a dispute. It's a matter of mahloket with regards to these asamot, these dry bones of Yechezkel. Did it actually happen? And if it did, 
who and what were we dealing with, we have plenty to discuss in the eyes of the rabbis. Did Tanya, as the Beraita teaches, Rabili Ezer Omer, Metim Shehia Yeheskel, Amedu al Raglehem, Veameru Shira, you should know. There would actually happen, says Rabili Ezer. Yeheskel brought back to life bones that got life. They stood on their feet and they sang a song. Mashira Ameru, what sort of song did they sing? Adonai Memit Behsedek, Mehaye Berahamim, Rabbioshua Mer, Shirazo Ameru, Adonai Memit Mehaye, Moritsha Ovayal, one of these two Pesukim which refer to God bringing forth to life something or someone that was dead. What's the idea of Shira? Again, we have a reference to Shira in the context of Tehiyat Ametim. We saw this in the Gemara a daf ago, as Yashir Yisrael was, Mikan Rem is the Tehiyat Ametim in the Torah. It's the place where Rashina's commentary to the Torah writes that as well. Why Shira in the context of Tehiyat Ametim? Shira, I'll mention it one more time, is mentioned and said in the Torah at moments of completion. When something is seen in totality, when the whole picture is revealed to the person or people, they express almost spontaneously with shira. You have it in this week's parasha, shirat ha-be'er. Shirat ha-be'er is, as we realize the end of the desert wilderness, 40 years is coming, has arrived, we're singing a song. As we left servitude in Egypt, shirat ha-yam. As we finally conquer the land of Israel, shirat devorah. Shira throughout is a shira of completion. It's for that reason you might be familiar, Rabbi for sure is, with uh, uh, the perek shira, envisioning and seeing and realizing and thinking thinking about how the animals are singing, animals singing, and look at the words in the, in the Midrash, it's words of realizing the complete nature of existence. Shira is in the context of completion. As a result, the vision immediately of Rabili Ezer is, they get up on their feet and they sing Shira, they feel completion, they see it. Okay, says the Gemara, Rabbi Omer, Emet Mashal Haya. Rabbi cryptically says, it was true, it was a parable. Well, which one was it? Was it true or was it a parable? Amarlo Rabbi says Rabbi Nehemiah, Rabbi Uda, I don't understand what you're talking about. Im emet, lama mashal, vi mashal, lama emet. If it was true, you're saying it actually happened, quote unquote, then it wasn't a parable, then it did not not actually happen. If it was a mashal, then it didn't actually happen. Ela be emet, mashal haya. All right, add one letter to the, to the head of that word, emet, and read it not as true, but rather in truth. In other words, he's saying it with certainty. In truth, you should know, said Rabbi Yehuda, it was a mashal. So these are the first two opinions we have in the Beraita. Either it actually happened, they stood up on their feet and sang shira, one of those two shirot, but the vision of each of the shirot being one of realization, of completion of existence, so to speak, and bringing forth life again. Or alternatively, it's a mashal. Rabbi Yehuda, Ben uh, audacious statement. Maybe he had it based on Masoret. Maybe he's trying to make a point for some reason. His statement here of Rabbi Ezra, son of Biosia Galili, says those actually existed. Those metim Not only did they actually exist, they lived a regular life. They got married. They were living in Israel. They had children. They had sons. They had daughters. 
the Midrash continues, Amad Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera al Ragla ve'amar Rabbi Yehuda ben Betera, who's a well-known name from the time of the Mishnah and Beraita, gets up on his feet and exclaims, Ani, me, myself, mi bene benehem. I'm one of their descendants, one of their grandchildren of those metim she'chiyah This must be a tradition, or maybe as family tree. Ve'halalu tefilin she'im yachli avi abba mehem. And the tefillin that I'm wearing, and it seems to be pointing to them, they're from those metim. They had, when they got resuscitated, the tefillin, and then it's been a family heirloom, it's been passed down, and I'm wearing the tefillin from them. Fascinating, amazing statement here in the Gemara. Now again, it's another one of those, we saw this by the Ben Soreru More, by the Irhani Dahat, where the Gemara initially says, maybe it never happened, and the other opinion says, no, 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 I was there and I cried over the tombstone, over the grave of those individuals. Again, I'm proving it by pointing to it. There is parenthetically something, something ironic and eerie with the regards to this, because there was Several hundred years ago, about eight, nine hundred years ago, there was this, uh, this uh, they believed that they found the burial plot of Yehezkel Hanavi, our Yehezkel, and they found therein Tefillin. And, you know, there was a question that was posed to the Rishonim, the time of Harambam, about whether we should follow what's written in those tefillin or not. It's just ironic. The Gemara's reference to tefillin from those metim she'achiyah yechizkel, and in turn the tefillin of yechizkel, and generally speaking, you should just know on that parenthetical note, we don't do so. We don't go based on archaeology and excavations with regards to halakha. That won't, and generally speaking, does not alter anything. The, the, if you go, not to yechizkel time, if you go to um, the Dead Seas, to Qumran, and that, that, that environment, you'll find the tefillin, and there are, there's a book written by, I think his name was Professor, I, forget, I think it was Daniel Cohen, I forgot that name, Yossi Cohen, uh, and, and he has in this, I think that's his name, has in this book, uh, it goes through one after another, there were so many types of tefillin, there were so many, in, in that, so what's the answer? Well, first and foremost, the people who were living there, they were the renegades, they were living outside of the regular center, and they were all different types. Understood, and as a result, don't make any diukim from it. What I'm going a step further and saying is, even if you went into what you knew, let's say, for argument's sake, it's your haskels. We don't know if it's actually a haskel. And you found, and they're not the same, it doesn't mean we're changing our tefillin. It actually means we're not changing our tefillin. Well, that was the debate. The debate that, that's the ironic debate. The ironic debate was it was brought as part of the conversation of Tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam and Rashi, which is already pre- preceding them. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a discussion beforehand. It's, what I'm adding is you, you, you can go beyond Rabbeinu Tam and Rashi. Even today we have beyond Rabbeinu Tam and Rashi. Chabad have their own type. They go by Sidura Rabbah. They have a different type of Tefillin, somewhat altogether. Now they wear two pairs. They wear Rabbeinu Tam as well, but they do a Sidura so they do a different spin on it. What I'm saying is you can find and you can figure out ways to develop many and you can find archaeological, that's what I remember reading in this book, archaeological evidence for many different types. You can claim, well, that one was from that sect and that one from that. I got it. But what I'm telling you is even if, and you probably can, you could find some tefillin from, quote, a mainstream sect and it's not the same, it's not changing my tefillin. It shouldn't change yours. God. The whole idea that we're trying to bring from this story is that the righteous don't, are not supposed to. Well, it was a challenge on that, right. Who says these are some of the righteous people? 
That's a great question. And as it was, that's a great question. So the question, it's a great question. As a matter of fact, the Gemara and its continued lines will suggest it wasn't righteous ones. That's what the Gemara will suggest. The Gemara will ask, who were those people? And have different opinions. It's for that reason, Maharsha doesn't love the approach of Rashi. Rashi's interpretation to this Gemara was, as you said, and so that's why I said I'm going with Rashi with skirting your issue, um, but uh, Rashi says the question is, if they're going to live eternally, how come we can't, we should look at the model from there? The response of Marash oh, what are you talking about? Those metim that's not what's taking place. We're dealing with potentially not righteous ones. We were only talking about the righteous ones. Instead, Maharsha reads this old Gemara as, just bring us back to Remez Letahiyat HaMetim Min HaTorah. That's difficult as well. If you recall on Daf Sadiq, the Gemara had a pasuk and the heretics responded back. No, maybe that's a reference to the Yehezkel circumstance. It means it can't be the model either. Mm-hmm. So it's not a simple read in the Gemara. Either way, you slice it, but you're right, Jesse. That's a great claim. Says the Gemara onward, says the Gemara, uh, mm-hmm. And now the rabbi is really getting homiletical. So, okay, so one second, let's just take a step back. It's certainly not certain, A, whether this took place, Rabbi Ezer, may have been a mashal, or Rabbi Udai, actually happened, but now that we can entertain that it actually happened, A, can we entertain in reality, quote-unquote, who it actually was, and B, if we can't, perhaps there's something that by speculating, by pontificating, and trying to figure out, maybe it was this group of people, maybe it was that group of people, we can derive some sort of understanding to ourselves. So who were they? Amar Rav, Rav's statement, Elu bene Ephraim, shemanu lakes veta'u, amazing statement. According to the Midrash, which Rav is referencing over here, Bene Ephraim, the, the, the children, the descendants of Ephraim, Ephraim, the son of Yosef, in Egypt miscalculated the 400 years of servitude and they left 30 years early. Why had they miscalculate? Rashi, quoting from the Midrash Hachamim, says, instead of counting from the birth of Yitzhak, they counted from the Nivuah of Abraham. It's 30 years off. And as a result, they left Egypt 30 years early, and they were slaughtered. Of course, Rabbi knows the Midrash. Before we go onward in understanding what the Midrash will say to us further, what sort of reference, what sort of vision do the rabbis have in determining? Now, either Masoret, they just knew this actually happened. Alternatively, they reconstructed this. What sort of vision? What sort of lesson are they teaching? This is a stern warning which we'll find more than once now in this Perek. You find at the end of Masechet Ketubot of the Hachamim being nervous about the propensity of us exiled Jews to figure out this is endgame. Let's do something dangerous now because God is on our side. Let's just jump into the uh, war zone because God is with us. That's the cautionary tale over here. They're saying B'nai Ephraim were certain it was done and as a result they pushed in and they were slaughtered. Say the rabbis intuitively, implicitly, they say, oh, wait a second, you see what happened over there? Guys, let's watch out. Don't do too many heshbonot in figuring out the right timing for something and then do something dangerous. What's the derashah? It's a derashah from Pesukim in Sefer Divrei Hayamim, right? The Pesukim have Ubene Ephraim, it's describing the descendants of Ephraim, and it goes, Shutala Hubered Beno V'tachat Beno Il'ada Beno V'tachat Beno and so on and so forth. And then it says, Vaharagum and Shegat Hanoladim Baaris Kiyaredu Lakahat et Miknehim. And the Dirasha, according to the Hachamim, goes as follows. They make their way into a place called Gat in Eretz Kena'an. And as, as they're in that place, they say, wait a second, God promised to our patriarch Abraham that we're going to have a lot of possession. So they turn to B'nai Gat and they say, can we have your mikneh? 
Uh, can we have your cattle? And it's like, go take a hike, go fly a kite. No, no, it's a prophecy from God. So they grab it. And B'negat, who know the land and are aware of the environment and situation, slaughter B'nei Ephraim. That's the reconstruction of the hachamim of what took place. Again, I'm just pointing out, it's a cautionary tale more, more than anything. Besides describing perhaps what they envisioned as history, it's a vision to each of us when you're so certain about something because God's on your side, because you know this is right, still play this cautiously, please. Don't go too far in this. Okay, that's the derasha in this context. Then the Pasuk says that Ephraim uh, is, uh, is, is mourning for the loss of those grandchildren. Amen, amen. What we have up ahead is to just deal with the end of this Midrash with regards to these Asamot, these individuals whom Yehezkel brought back to life, and then we move on. Amen, amen.